0: Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. Part three. You guys having fun with this series on money? <clears throat> yeah? You enjoying this? Nobody says anything. Awesome. Okay. So let's review for a couple minutes. Turn to the person and say, this is going to be awesome. Come on. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. God's doing a lot of work in our hearts and our lives. In the first week, we dealt with some significant lies. That we believe that completely changed the way that we look at money. One of the lies was is that you're not really rich, right? This lie that says, well, I'm not really rich. Well, yes, you really are. Or I deserve what I have. There's another lie. Another lie is a little bit more would be enough if I had a little bit more. Another lie is if I had enough surplus, I would feel secure. All of those are lies that we debunked and we looked at the big idea, which is a rock solid transformative thought that you know how much you believe in eternity by how much you give for God. And that idea may make you uncomfortable. It makes me challenge, stretch, that I know how much I believe in the eternal things by how much I give for God in this life. And so you can look back at week one, if you want, if you say, oh, I don't know about that thought, go back to week one, listen to the whole sermon and uh, I pray God speaks to you. Last week we looked at first steps. How many of you were with us last week and walked through this process of first steps? Great, three of us were there. Awesome. And so we talked about the preeminence of Jesus and this one was, this one was uncomfortable. I mean, the preeminence of Jesus and how we declare his preeminence. And I showed you a pattern throughout scripture that we declare that you are first in all things by giving first, right? And so this is a radical idea, one that often, you know, stretches us, we talked about giving and then establishing a budget and then killing debt. Some very practical pieces of the puzzle to help us get free and to find victory. And these have been, you know, I know for many of us, very painful two weeks where God started to chop at us and cut at us and convict us and speak to us. And that's that's good. I think that's of the Lord. But um, but also, uh, I think that it was important that today. We pull back a little bit and I'm not going to give you like the practical as much as today is I'm going to go after your heart. Because what I believe and what the Lord would press on me over the last couple of weeks is that if you start to put into practice the things we've talked about the last two weeks, but you don't deeply have entrenched in your heart, the reality that we're going to unpack today, then the things that you do become a law and they don't become grace and they're a poison to your soul rather than a joy. And so it's critical, critical, not just to do the right things, but to do the right things from the right heart. So if you have a Bible, go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're going to start there, and, uh, and the Lord's going to speak to us in a significant way today. Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I can just, uh, I'll read it out, but um, just hang out really on just a few verses today, starting in verse 32. We're going to read it, and uh, then we'll unpack it a bit. Here we go. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Thank you for your word, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as a family and read your word. God, we know that it's life to us, that your word is life to our souls. Jesus, I know that every one of us is at a different place um, in every area of life virtually, and, and specifically in the area of money. All different stories and issues and struggles and stresses and bills and debts and desires. Lord, I pray that today you would divinely custom fit these words to each of our lives. Speak to us. God, we're not interested in hearing a man. We want to hear from God. And so I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of us in a profound way. Lord, let these words come alive and clarify who you are and ignite something new on the inside of us. We love you, Jesus. We honor you today. Amen. Amen. All right, you know, if, um, if you know much about history, you know that 1776 was a pretty significant year in the history of this particular country. That a bunch of colonial leaders gathered together in that year... ...drafted a document that would shape the future of our uh, nation in many ways. And these words, I'm sure you've heard before... uh, ...stood at the very beginning of that declaration. It says this, that we hold these truths to be self-evident... ...that all men are created equal... ...and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of... Yeah, pursuit of happiness. Benjamin Franklin later wrote about that... ...that the Constitution only gives people the right to pursue happiness... You have to catch it yourself, right? And so for the last 200 years, people have been seeking to catch this happiness. And so happiness has become something that used to be a collective ideal... But in the last 200 years of our nation's history, we have shrunk it down and made it a personal ambition more than a collective ideal. And so happiness is all about obtaining something for myself. And specifically around this time of Christmas, the temptation is that happiness gets bottled in the new thing that I get. Right? And so happiness can be found in the new something fill in the blank right the new something and so there is a certain degree of satisfaction or happiness in new things i mean right you bought that new sweater and you kind of you wear it and you're like boy i like this sweater it feels good and there's a degree of happiness that comes with that or a new jacket or a new car it's got that incredible new car smell right i don't mine doesn't have the new car smell but you know the smell if you have a car that does and it's like i love that smell it's like plasticky leathery smell it's nice This new thing, you know, maybe you got a new TV and it's, you know, it's got that kind of fun excitement to it. And what we know, most of us, is that the enjoyment from these things does have a shelf life, that it doesn't last, right? Jesus talked about this multiple times, so did Paul. Jesus said that life does not consist in the abundance of things. Paul said that you can take hold of that which is truly life. And in American culture, we've been deeply pursuing happiness through possessions for a long time. And it's not exactly working out. Let me hit you with some statistics. Since 1972, about one-third of Americans would describe themselves is very happy, according to surveys found by the National Science Foundation. One-third. So that means two-thirds of Americans are not very happy. Since 2004, the share of Americans who identify themselves as optimists has plummeted from 79 to 50%, according to a new time poll. Meanwhile, more than 20% of us will suffer from mood disorders. At some point in our lifetime, more than 30% from anxiety disorders. By the time we're 18, 11% of us will have been diagnosed with depression. According to the 2012 World Happiness Report, published by the Earth Institute at Columbia University, the U.S. ranks 23rd on a 50-country happiness index far behind number one, you'll never guess. Iceland. Number two, New Zealand. Number three, Denmark, trailing Singapore, Malaysia, Tanzania, and Vietnam. So what we see here is that we have a people who are incredibly wealthy, richest per capita place on the planet. We are incredibly wealthy, and yet we're ranked 23rd out of 50 happiest places. In terms of the personal people that live here. And so happiness has been something that's been dodging our culture as we pile up more stuff. It's not actually creating the happiness that we've been longing for. And you know this. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? You know that the, that the, that the thrill of the new thing wears off. And there is a certain happiness. And gosh, I got this new car. I love to drive it. It's very exciting. And two months later, it's like, eh. You know, and the, the gifts you get on Christmas are exciting now. And then January 20th, it's like, yeah, they're cool. They're fine. I mean, it's, 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 it is what it is. It has that flavor and then it wears off. Now in Acts chapter 20, I want to give you a little bit of the background of what's happening here. The Apostle Paul is going to unveil for us a different way of living. A higher realm of happiness. And uh, what I want to press on you today is if we don't get this. The things we've talked about the last two weeks don't fit in a kingdom lifestyle. That you've got to get a passion or a vision of what it means to be truly happy in order to experience real life. Inwardly. So let me give you some background about this passage that we just read a second ago. Paul is saying this to the Ephesian elders. He spent about three years discipling these people. And these are leaders of the church of Ephesus. It's a place in Turkey that Paul's been investing his time, seen lots of people meet Jesus. He's gone through crazy stuff with these guys. He's seen miracles. He's seen, you know, crazy life and death situations, all types of stuff. And in the midst of these three years, Paul has developed deep, intimate friendships with these people. Now he tells them in the beginning of chapter 20, hey, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And they freak out. And they're like, don't go to Jerusalem. There's religious zealots in Jerusalem that are going to kill you, Paul. You can't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I have to go. God's called me to go. He's told me to go. I need to go. And so they go back and forth. They finally say, okay, go. And now Paul is going to speak for us the last words to these Ephesian elders before he departs. And the words are loaded with substance because he's going to unveil for us what makes the soul truly happy. So let's start in verse 32. He says, and now I commend you to God, And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the first thing Paul says. He says, I'm going to commend you to God and to the word or the story of his grace, right? I'm going to commend you to this story because the story is what's going to build you up. The story is what's going to bring an inheritance. When you get this, when you understand the word of grace spoken, it does this in your life. In another passage in Corinthians, Paul outlines this word of grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I'm going to read it in the Amplified Bible. He says this, For we are becoming progressively acquainted with and recognizing more strongly and clearly the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to unpack what it is. In that though he was so very rich, yet for your sakes he became so very poor. In order that by his poverty you might become abundantly supplied. So what is the word of his grace? Because this is where we start. See, the word of his grace that Jesus outlines here uh, through the Apostle Paul is the story that God became man that God chose in His grace to dwell among us, to limit Himself to humanity, to raise, to spend most of His life in obscurity, to climb up on a cross and then on that cross allow all the wrath of God to be poured out on Him so that all the judgment for your sins from the day you were born to the day you die could be paid in full in Christ so that the righteousness given to Jesus because of His standing before God is imputed to you at no cost to all. So true riches, here we go. Eternal riches is this God, man, Christ Jesus, blameless before the father. And he gives you that true riches for free and takes on himself the wickedness, sin and separation that you've had from God for all time. And so there's this exchange that occurs and the apostle Paul calls this story, the word of grace, the word of his grace. And it's this word of his grace that gets on the inside of us and starts to do supernatural things. And so we We see the creator becoming the curse. And it's this word of grace that stirs up inside of us. I want to give you quickly today four observations to consider from this passage. If you want to write them down, you can. Four observations that will help you as we go on this journey towards understanding the hiding place of happiness. Observation number one. Real life begins with a grace encounter. Real life begins with a grace encounter. See, all the things that we've talked about in the area of management of money and giving and generosity, if the grace encounter is missing, it becomes a law and a burden and a bondage. But if you have this grace encounter, you start to experience real life on the inside. Real life begins with a grace encounter. A grace encounter. You see this in the story of Zacchaeus, right? If you know that story, you know that Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was someone that was in disobedience to God and Jesus is walking by and everybody hates Zacchaeus because he had been robbing the people of their money and Jesus walking by and he looks at Zacchaeus and in a moment he says Zacchaeus I want to spend time with you and in this moment this grace encounter something supernaturally shifts in the life of Zacchaeus and he looks at Jesus and he says I'm going to give half my possessions away and anyone I've ever wronged I'll pay back double what happened to this guy grace he encountered grace real life begins with a grace encounter Real life begins with a grace encounter. Look at verse 33. I coveted no one's silver. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or American apparel. He didn't want any of their stuff, right? <clears throat> that was a lame joke. You can laugh. Okay, so so verse 33, he says, I didn't covet any of their stuff, right? So what does covet mean? It means to wrongfully desire something that belongs to another. You can covet their car. You can covet their wife. You can covet their house. And we do live in a culture where I would propose to you that coveting is far more frequent than you may think. You know, um, the last time you watched a reality TV show, I mean, I know you don't watch reality TV shows, but other people who might would watch a reality TV show, and you know, you see the beautiful house that they're living in, and the, and the beautiful bed that they have, and the beautiful yard that they have, and it's perfectly manicured, and you shut that show up, and 30 minutes have gone by, and now you're sitting in your house, and it feels small. Right? It's like, what the heck? This is a piece of junk house I'm living in. What happened? Something coveting started to stir and start, it happens with social media. Now, I know that I'm not anti-social media in and of itself, but what happens on social media far too often is you jump online, and you're checking things out, and boy, they had a baby. Boy, I want a baby. I don't have a baby, but they have a baby. Boy, they went on vacation. They edited out all the stupid pictures, and all the cool pictures are still there, and they look happy. Look, they're all smiling, and I'm not smiling, and I'm not on vacation. I, I want to I be on vacation smiling. I, I should be on, why don't I have a smiling vacation coming up right now? <laughs> Boy, their Christmas decor is unreal. What did they... I need to get some more Christmas decor. I don't have enough fluffy ornament things in my house. I mean, this is what happens. Yes, it does. On the inside of you. And that's what's happening there is a coveting desire to want something that's not yours. And Paul sets an example here. And he says, listen, I've experienced this grace encounter. I haven't coveted anybody's stuff. Second observation I want to make. A grace encounter leads to new ambitions. New ambitions start to stir up in the heart of the person that's experienced grace. I remember for me, when I first met Jesus, there was this band <clears throat> at the time called Tree 63. And they were, uh, they were a, a, a Christian band that was singing a bunch of different songs. And their big song, the chorus went, what can I do for you, my Lord? I want you to know my heart is yours. It's not a question of what you can do for me, but what can I do for you, my Lord? Now, I remember just singing that song in my 1986 Honda Accord, just like, yeah, on my cassette tape. Like, what can I do for you? You know, because it just had this something in it that caught my heart at that time because I had experienced a grace encounter that Christ had accepted, messed up, broken, adjusted and started to love on me. And when that love started seeping deep into my soul, it created new ambitions. A grace encounter leads to new ambitions. Let <sighs> me say, this is good. New ambitions start to stir up in your heart. Now, I want to try to clean something up here. It's not wrong to enjoy stuff, okay? When you start talking about generosity and giving, people start thinking that it's wrong. There's a whole sect of Christianity that thinks it's wrong to enjoy stuff. We should just be sourpusses and not enjoy everything. The scripture says clearly that God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. In the book of Acts, it says that we ate with, they ate with glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. So it's good to enjoy stuff. I mean, I enjoy a nice steak. Amen? Come on. Somebody in the house, you don't all eat lettuce only, right? A nice steak. I enjoy a nice steak. I really do. I mean, I enjoy playing wiffle ball with my kids. I enjoy making out with my wife. I enjoy a lot of things that are wonderful, awesome, beautiful things that God has given me to enjoy to the glory of God. And it's awesome. It's wonderful. You know, we play, in my house, we started playing this game, Old Maid, you know, the card game. I don't know if you've ever played... It is a lethal game in the Kendrick household. I mean, the kids get fired up if they end up being the old maid. It's like, no! You know, and so that goes around and it's intense. It's an intense game that we play often at this time in life. And it, it's, it's awesome. I enjoy it. I mean, we laugh so hard sometimes. It's like, it's awesome. And God gave us those things to enjoy. And specifically under his guidelines, he says, I want you to enjoy these things. But the Christian understands... That yes, God gave us all this to enjoy, but there's a higher level of enjoyment. There's a higher happiness. There's something bigger that Paul's been talking about, and that's the real focus of my pursuit. That these things are wonderful, and I enjoy them, and God gave them to me for enjoy. But I'm not going to get all tangled up in these things, because there's a far greater happiness available. And that's what he desires, the ambition of your heart to be pulled towards. And scripture consistently talks about this. And maybe you're here and you're saying, well, how much is too much? How much is too much? That's like the guy asking, how much can I make out with my girlfriend before it's sin? It's the wrong perspective. It's the wrong perspective. If you're saying, well, how much is too much, Justin? How much accumulation is too much? The bigger question is why do you want that stuff so much and often neglect this higher happiness that God gives us opportunity to pursue? That's the real question. What's going on inside you? Because a grace encounter creates new ambitions. New ambitions stir in the heart of the person that's experienced grace. Verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all these things I've shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Now, hold on a second. He says working hard. You know that God is into hard work? Wow, that was terrible. Do you know that God is into hard work? God desires you to work hard. I remember my crash course in discipleship as a young man. We uh, we got a two-bedroom apartment with four young college guys. And so we're living in this two-bedroom apartment. We're trying to lead people to Jesus. This guy who's a drug dealer gets saved, gives his life to Christ. We say, do you have anywhere to live? He says, no, I don't know where to live. We'll come live on our couch. And so he comes and lives on our couch. This other guy who was a drug user gets saved. And oh, do you have anywhere? I'll come live on our couch. And so before we knew it, a two-bedroom apartment with four guys became a two-bedroom apartment with eight stinky dudes. And about three of them were just not working. They were hanging around playing video games and, you know, need to go get jobs. And so we'd get home. Me and a couple of the other guys that actually worked would get home. We'd open up the refrigerator and all of our food would have evaporated while we were gone. And I was like, what the heck happened in here? And so we put a big sign on our fridge that said, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's what Paul said to the Thessalonians. God's into hard work. Work. Eat or starve. <clears throat> and certainly there's other you know, reasons why people can't work. I understand all that. But these guys had none of those reasons. They were just lazy. So God's prospered you. So you work hard. Why do you work hard? Here's the question. Why do you work hard? Well, I work hard to provide. Good. Well, I work hard to enjoy. Good. But those are both on this level. What about this level? What about something bigger? Why do you work? Why do you work hard? Did you notice what the scripture said? Check this out. Herein lies a mystery. The new ambitions. It says, in all these things, I've shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. We must help the weak. Why has God prospered you? Is it just to enjoy? Or is there, there a greater reason why God has prospered you? Let me show it to you in Second Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness, speaking of course in farming terms. But then he says this, you will be enriched in every way so that you can buy more cars and bigger houses and nicer stuff and live lavish and always have extra and never have to do anything and build this wall of security around yourself so you feel really important. That's actually not exactly the translation that it says, but it says you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. That's why Genesis chapter 12 talks about Abraham and how God's going to bless him. And he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you can feel important and have big stuff and have action figures made about you. No, that's not what he says. He says, I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I told you I'd give you four things. The fourth, third thing I want to give you today is that my excess is someone else's answer to prayer. My excess is someone else's answer to prayer. God blesses me so that I can enjoy it. Sure, God blesses me so that I can provide. Sure, but those are on this level. God's got a higher level for you and he wants your ambitions. He wants your desires. He wants your heart. He doesn't want a law of giving. He wants a grace of giving. He wants you to tap in to a higher happiness and that higher happiness is only found when you start to realize that I've been blessed so that I can be a blessing preaching thank you so i work hard i budget i give first I i declare his preeminence in my money by giving before i pay my mortgage we talked about that last week so that when the opportunity arises like the good samaritan i can see the need and i've got some coin that i can put towards it in the moment that's beautiful let's finish this verse in 35 in all these things, I've shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Here's Paul's going to quote Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard those words before. Oh, it's more blessed to give. It's kind of just like a, you know, cliche phrase. Yeah, it's more blessed to give. And when I, as I started studying this passage this week, that phrase just kept kind of amplifying in my mind. You know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it literally means it's more happy. Check this out. It's more happy by comparison. So it's a comparison in the Greek. So in other words, saying by comparison, it's happier for you giving than it is getting. The Amplified Bible says it like this. It makes one happier to give. Then to receive the message translation says you are far greater happier giving than getting in other words There's a hiding place where happiness has been and you can stockpile all your stuff and accumulate all your things And you can experience the happiness found in receiving that lasts only for a little while But there's a greater happiness available. There's a bigger happiness available But it's only access when your heart starts to shift on the inside. So here's what we see God's intention is to break into your heart with this word of grace, this story of grace, that He shows you that God made Him who knew no sin, Christ to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And we stand before God blameless, holy, and righteous without any sin in our lives and we realize that we've been justified freely by His grace and it stirs inside of us new ambitions. It starts to germinate new desires on the inside of our soul and now we begin to reach beyond just filling our own souls, but our soul's are already full in Christ. And so it enables us to live with an open hand. I told you I'd give you four things and I want to end with this idea that true happiness is hidden in Christ-inspired generosity. True happiness is hidden in Christ-inspired generosity. Friend, you've spent too long with an empty heart and a closed fist. And you wonder why the stuff doesn't do it. It doesn't do it because only Christ can fill that place in your soul and inspire in you an open hand that makes life worth living. It makes life come alive. I remember when uh, I was a, just a new believer in Jesus, you know, and um, and uh, I, was in, I was at I was at a Christian event, and at that time, you know, it was cool to wear Christian t-shirts. <clears throat> Maybe you remember those days. And I had a super cool Christian t-shirt. And it was in the days where you'd wear like two t-shirts on top of each other. Did anybody else do that? Okay, just me. Great. So I had two t-shirts on, and uh, and I had my cool Christian t-shirt on the outside. And I was a new Christian feeling pretty cool with my cool Christian t-shirt. And I'm, you know, just hanging out, and another friend of mine who was a Christian comes to me and says, Man, that is a cool Christian t-shirt. And I was like, well, thank you. I mean, I was already aware of that. But... You've affirmed it, and that's good, and so I felt important, you know, and in that moment, I just sensed a little prick of the Holy Spirit, just say to my spirit, give him your cool Christian t-shirt right now, and I mean, here it is, a t-shirt, 15 bucks, I mean, it was state-of-the-art, I mean, it was nice, I mean, but still, it was like, Lord, really? I mean, I am cool, vicariously through this t-shirt, are you sure? And I remember in the moment, and this is, this is stupid, but I had two t-shirts on, so it wouldn't be awkward, you know, I wouldn't be t shirtless And so I, I, I took the shirt off and I just handed it to him. I remember the look on his face like, what are you doing? And I handed him, I said, here. It's your shirt now. And he was like, he was like, thanks. And he just took the shirt and I remember I as a brand new Christian at the time. Brand new Christian. I remember giving him the shirt and like this like torrent of happiness like filled my heart it's like it was a rough, it was like wow i enjoyed giving that t-shirt more than i enjoyed wearing it i'm more happy living with an open hand than i ever could be trying to control everything with a closed fist there's a secret here friends happiness has been hiding and if you're not intentional about it you're going to miss it Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 11, in the message translation, verse 24 says it like this. It's a great, great translation. It says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. See, as we talk about generosity the last couple of weeks and we talk about giving, I've said this every week and I'm going to say it again, that we're, I don't want your money. Genuinely, do not want your money. I desperately want your heart for God desperately wants your heart. And that's what God's after. He doesn't need your money and he doesn't want it, but he wants your heart. And you can live your whole life trying to control things and trying to build your surplus and trying to always have more than enough and always be in control and all of this stuff. But when you start to le- learn that an open hand is actually a life worth living, that when your heart's full because of grace, it enables you to be free with what you have. When you experience that, you're really living. Living really living and it opens up for you a whole new level of happiness because it's been hidden there all along in christ-inspired generosity maybe you know the story about jim elliott and uh The missionary, young missionary, who spent years training and preparing to go to a village in South America where people had never heard about Jesus. And so him and three of his friends prepare and do all this stuff. They fly airplanes overhead and drop off gifts for weeks so that the people feel encouraged. And when they come, they'll be accepted. They do all this preparation. They pray. They go through classes. They do all this stuff. And finally, on January eighth, 1956, Jim Elliott and three friends land in the jungles of South America to proclaim the gospel to this new Native tribe who has never heard the name of Jesus. They land the plane and immediately they're, they're attacked by this tribe. All of them are murdered. Their bodies are found floating downstream. And there's national outcry in the United States. Life magazine does a 10-page article. The world is stunned by this terrible act of brutality. And of course, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, is left bankrupt. Can't imagine. I mean, how do you, what do you do now? You know, inwardly. You've put everything you have into this mission. Everything you are to prepare yourself for this. And on the first day of encounter, your husband's taken from you. If there was ever a time to recoil back in. To lose sight of the fact that the world of the generous gets larger and larger. If anybody had an excuse to ignore that truth, maybe it was Elizabeth Elliot. But what some of us don't know is that two years later... Elizabeth Elliot and a friend pack up all their belongings and move to the jungle in South America to meet the people who killed their husband, husbands. And um, she lives among them, she teaches them Christ. She finds the people that killed Jim, and she forgives them face to face. She said some words I want to just think about as we wrap up here today. She said, "Where does your security lie? Is God your refuge?" your hiding place, your stronghold, your shepherd, your counselor, your friend, your redeemer, your savior, your guide. And if he is, you don't need to search any further for security. And she said, the world looks for happiness through self-assertion. The Christian knows that joy is found in self-abandonment. True happiness. Life indeed. Indeed in Christ-inspired generosity. We taught you a lot of principles the last two weeks, taught you principles of giving, the preeminence of Christ, budgeting, killing debt, and all these things. And we'll get even more practical before this is over. But here I want to pause. And if you do all that stuff, but your heart doesn't encounter grace, and you don't do it out of a flow of generosity, then you've missed the point completely. what I dream about and pray about as a people who this isn't just a talk it's a way of life, it's a way of doing life that the great desire of our hearts is to glorify Jesus let's pray Father I know you're talking to us over the last few weeks this area of money as we've kind of dug into our hearts when it comes to generosity and our finances and when it comes to budgeting and planning and All this stuff, God. Lord, as we've gone through that and you're dealing with our hearts today, I pray that we would see Christ. That we would see the generosity of Jesus. That we would see that he, who was so, so, so rich, became so, so poor. So that we could be rich. God, I pray that you unveil to us what true riches are. And you take hold of our hearts with a spirit of generosity that's not manipulated or contrived or... Demanded, but a generosity that flows from new ambitions that come from an encounter with your grace. God, I pray this would be the source of radical generosity in this church and far beyond this city for your glory. Lord, let your grace rest upon us. Speak to us specifically today. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this City Church podcast. Visit City Church at www.ourcitychurch.org.